Good morning. Let's pray to the Lord again. Father, we do come to you this morning. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds to see the wonder of the cross. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, I said this last week. I'm going to say it again this week. I need to find a solution for this. Uh, but I'm probably going to close my Bible. You should always be warned when people close their Bibles. Uh, I have God's word right here on this page. And so I don't want you to be distracted, nor do I want to be distracted by it flipping. So uh, I'm going to keep it open for now. So, uh, beloved, as we think about this passage, this weighty passage this morning, uh, I want to speak to you, Restoration Church, about the death of your death and the death of Christ on the cross. I want to speak to you about the death of your death and the death of your Savior on the cross. When we began Luke last September, we knew these final two chapters of Luke was where he was taking us. And we've arrived. We've come to the cross and to the resurrection. The Apostle Paul will later write of these events here. Uh, that they are a matter of first importance. And so I wonder for you, Christian, before I quoted that verse, what for you, beloved, is of first importance? Is it the cross and the resurrection? And for you, uh, non-Christian friends that are here, so thankful that you're here this morning. What is for you a matter of first importance? In other words, what's the most fundamental part of your identity? Is it your job? Your education? Your career? Your political allegiances? Is it your sexuality? Is it your marital status? Is it your family? What is of first importance for you? Well, for we Christians, the cross and the resurrection of Christ are matters of first importance. They, they define us. They are our primary identities. Everything else comes below them. And so as Christians, we don't understand these truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not understand them to be one option among many. Now, we understand these gospel truths to be just that. We understand them to be truths. In the same way that gravity is true. You don't progress beyond gravity. You only seek to conform to gravity. So you might you might climb to the top of a skyscraper and deny gravity. But friend, you're left to pay the consequences. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be a matter of first importance for every human being on planet Earth. To live in any other way is to deny gravity. It's to deny the truth. But why, you might ask, is the cross of first importance to we Christians? What is it about the cross that defines us, that orients us, and is to orient you? Well, by the Lord's grace, my friend, this morning I intend to answer that question. But before doing so, we need to acknowledge that in our society, the cross has become jewelry. It's become home decor. It's become a tattoo for both believers and non-believers alike. In other words, we need to acknowledge that in our society, the truth of the cross has never had its power emptied. However, the symbol of the cross has indeed become so familiar 
so accepted and therefore so tamed in the minds of many that it's lost its meaning to many. And so if I do my job this morning, at some point, we should all understand that before the cross is beautiful, it's offensive. And only then can we begin to understand the beauty and the power of the cross. So again, big idea this morning is to present to you again for the first time the death of death in the death of Christ. And when we left Jesus last week, uh, we had seen that through numerous mock trials, Jesus had been put up time and again, only to be uh, proven innocent, yet declared guilty. That's what we saw last week. Jesus endured mockings and beatings of the highest order. They shoved a crown of thorns on his head and had him scourged by a whip to the delight of many. The Roman governor Pilate had given in to the will of the crowds as they demanded that Jesus be crucified simply for proclaiming who he was as the king of kings. And if you look down in our passage this morning in verse 26, we see that Jesus was so fatigued by these beatings, by these whippings, that he needed someone else to carry his cross. Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is a, uh, is a town in northern Libya. So Simon is likely in town for the festivities of the Passover and they rope him into the events of the gospel. Great multitudes of people follow Jesus as he limps his way outside of the city walls of Jerusalem and he eventually makes his way up to the place of the skull or sometimes called Golgotha or Calvary. The multitudes were lamenting and mourning, the text tells us. They were lamenting and mourning at what was happening to Jesus. And so similar to our own days, the people of Jerusalem were divided about what happened to Jesus. Many, remember, cried, crucify him. The crowds were crying, crucify him. And yet there are many here that are also lamenting and mourning him. And the same, of course, is true still today. These two groups, as we will consider And on his journey up to the cross, Jesus addresses, we see, the daughters of Jerusalem by warning them amidst his own pain. That's amazing. He warns them that they should not weep for him, but he says that they should weep for themselves. Because, he says, the days are coming, when in essence, he says, the days are coming when people will say that it had been better to not been born at all. And the reason Jesus gives is because they will, if they treat Jesus Like this, while the wood is green, as he is here, how much more will the world crucify those that follow him after he's gone? We prayed for them this morning. This is normal. It's normal. Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us, it's normal for Christians to suffer for their faith. That's normal. Jesus makes it up the hill to Golgotha, and there they crucify him. These are the events that for hundreds of years prophets have been testifying to. They nail his hands and his feet to a wooden cross. We learn in verse 38 that above Jesus' head on the cross is the reason for his punishment. That's what that sign is. And on that sign, his reason for his punishment is that he's the king of the Jews. And so friends... If anyone ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be a king, 
that he never claimed to be the son of God, that he never claimed to be the Messiah. Friends, just remind them of that placard above his head. It was the reason why he went to the cross. But Jesus, we see, is crucified between two other criminals. And here we have the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus would be numbered among the transgressors. In addition, we have the fulfillment of another promise in Psalm 22, verse 16, that he would have his hands and his feet pierced. What little clothing was left of Christ is bartered for below him as he hangs, which also fulfills the words of another prophecy in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. And then we even know, while Luke doesn't record these words, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus utters those gut-wrenching words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there he quotes Psalm 22, 1. Just in these events, Psalm 22 is fulfilled. As he hangs, Jesus, he suspended between heaven and earth, we find that there are two groups of people below and around him. There are the few that are devoted to him and the many that are not. And those two groups of people, friends, represent the only two responses to the cross of Christ. Everyone on planet earth responds to the cross in one of two ways. They either lament, they mourn, they repent, they believe and they follow. Or they reject, they chastise, they mock or they move on. But before we take a closer look at those two groups and where you might stand in relation to him, let's zero in for a moment on what they are responding to. In other words, let's listen to the narrator's voice here. Let's hear from the Holy Spirit through the pen of Luke as to what the cross means. What is it that is of first importance about the cross? What's so central? Well, first off, it's important that we recall the fact that Jesus has told us numerous times that this cross is why he came. We saw that in Luke 9, 21 to 22. We saw it in Luke 9, 43 to 44. We saw it in Luke 18, 31 to 33. And of course, we saw it in the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, 14 to 20. Jesus has made crystal clear that he came to seek and to save the lost. And the way that he saves the lost, he tells us, is by being handed over and being killed as a sacrificial substitute and then rising on the third day. And so, in other words, friends, none of these events are surprising to Jesus. He's in control. We see this cross anticipated from the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament To the prophecies of Isaiah 53. Jesus was born to die as a substitute for sinners who believe. Think about that beloved after we start to celebrate the Christmas season. He was born to die. But let's see how Jesus teaches us this death. See how Luke teaches us. Look in verse 44. We read there that from the sixth hour till the ninth hour. The sun's light failed. Just as the sun comes out now. It failed. It went dark. For the better part of three hours or so. In the middle of the day, for an expanded amount of time, it goes dark. And in the Old Testament, darkness represented either divine lament or divine judgment. And we find both here in these moments. 
These two themes come together. Judgment and lament come together. As Jesus is breathing his final breaths, the pervasive darkness is meant to communicate heaven's joining in the laments of the daughters of Jerusalem. And it also indicates judgment. In this case, it indicates the judgment of God on the Son of God for the sins of the people of God. Darkness indicates the judgment of God on the Son of God for the sins of the people of God. We see this time and again in the New Testament. We see, for instance, in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse or a judgment for us that believe. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, there's the judgment, uh, on on our behalf that we that believe might become the righteousness of God in him. Or we can think about the words of Jesus himself in John 10 when he says, I lay my life down for the sheep, for the sheep. Or Mark 10, 45, I came, he said, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom, as a payment for many. And so friends, the darkness represents this lament and this judgment. The Son of God is forsaken by his Father so that we who believe might not be forsaken by the Father. You might say, well, Nathan, what other references other than this darkness do you have that Luke is teaching this? Well, take a look at verse 45. Look at, look what comes next. As the sun goes dark, we find something else is happening. We find that the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Now, other accounts in the Gospels tell us that this curtain is torn from top to bottom. By the way, this is like a 30 foot high curtain. In other words, what the Bible seems to be teaching us is that it's God that is the one in the midst of the death of Christ. God is the one that is tearing the veil in the temple. Now, what does this mean exactly? Well, the curtain of the temple was separated, uh, was separating these two places inside the temple. It was separating the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was the inner sanctum all the way to the end of the temple where God was said to dwell amongst his people. The holy place was had this curtain, then there was the holy place in front of that. And that place, the priests would go in daily. But that most holy place could only be entered into one time a year by the great high priest. And he would enter on the day of atonement. Wherein he would sprinkle the blood of a goat as an offering for the sins of the people. And so friends, with the tearing of the curtain from top to bottom in the death of Christ, the Lord was now saying, there is no more division. All can come in that believe. The shadows of the old covenant sacrificial system were complete because the shadows gave way to the reality of the new covenant sacrificial lamb who as John said had come to offer his life as a ransom for many as John said himself the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world because he's offering that payment the curtain is open and those who believe can go in the old covenant sacrificial system is complete the new covenant system is inaugurated Paul even goes on to write of this in to the church in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 to 18 listen to what he says He says, but now, he's writing to the church, but now in Christ Jesus, 
you who once were far off have been brought near. How, we might ask? By the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. That's Jew and Gentile. Now one man. So making peace and reconcile us both to God. So the Jew and Gentile, the world that is, comes, can be reconciled to God in one body. How? Through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. Christ's death kills the hostility for the believers that are Jew or Gentile. And he came, Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's the tearing, there's the going in. Through the blood, through the cross. Hebrews 10, 19 to 20 says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. In other words, the darkness of judgments combined with the tearing of the veil in the temple where God was said to dwell. What is happening here is it's God saying to us, Christ's perfect sacrifice has been taken away for the sins of his people forever. And so because of him, you trust him. His record gets counted to you. You can go into the curtain. You can go into the inner sanctum. You can go and meet with God whenever you want. You're free. You're forgiven. Jesus was judged in our place. Therefore, because of his perfect body and blood, we who are in Christ, we no longer have a veil to separate us from God. Again, the old covenant is eradicated and the new covenant is fulfilled. It's inaugurated. Christ has accomplished at one meant. Atonement, sacrifice. The wall of the curtain is down and now all that believe, listen, we are all priests When I talk to my Roman Catholic friends, this is the passage I take them to every time. Priests must go to God. Yes, but guess who are priests according to Scripture? Those that believe are all royal priests. All that believe on Christ have been made clean in Christ. Therefore, uh, those that believe can freely go into the most holy place and meet with God with no fear of judgment since Christ was judged in our place. We read in verse 46, Jesus' final words as he gives his spirit up to the Father. The Father receives him. And because he does, God receives those of us that believe. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who believe. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Therefore, the blood of bulls and goats has been replaced by the blood of the Lamb. In fact, it's important to note that on the Day of Atonement in the book of Leviticus, in the Old Covenant, there was not one goat, but two goats on the Day of Atonement. One goat's blood was taken behind that curtain and sprinkled on the mercy seat of God, representing the blood of Christ. But the other goat, the other goat was sent away into the wilderness to represent that the sins of the people are pushed away forever. 
The first goat represented the means of forgiveness. The second goat represented the effect of forgiveness. Christ was both on the cross. His perfect body and blood is the means of forgiveness. Therefore, the effect of our sins is such that he sent them all away. (laughs) As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. And we now have peace with God. The darkness and the curtain tearing, friends, are at the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus has offered up his spirit to the Father so that we who believe might no longer be under judgment, but instead under grace. Well, friends, we find here in the passage that Jesus breathes his last. That reminds us, doesn't it, that the wages of sin is what? Death. Christ had to die, not just suffer, but die. And when Christ dies, listen, that's when death dies. The death of Jesus fulfills, friends, the greatest promise at all. The one that the New Old Testament authors were waiting on. The promise in Genesis 3.15, when uh, after the fall had happened, Adam and Eve had rebelled. God made a promise that he was going to crush death. He said there was going to be a he, a person that would come to crush the head of the serpent. And along the way, his heel was going to be bruised. And so here, and we find at the death of Christ, Christ does crush the head of the serpent. And along the way, he is bruised. He's hurt. And this, friends, answers that question that sometimes people ask. How can one person's sacrifice take away many people's sin? You ever asked that question before? How can one person's sacrifice take many people's sin away? Well, the answer is that Jesus' sacrifice was a unique sacrifice, unlike any other. Friend, I can't die for your sin, no matter how good or bad a person I am. But Jesus was unique. He alone was fully God and fully man. One pastor said it this way. He said, finite creatures cannot bear infinite punishment in a finite time. But an infinite person, Jesus, may bear infinite punishment in a little time. In other words, friends, because Jesus was the God-man, he alone could pay the infinite price that was due to the infinite God that we offended since Jesus himself was God. And also, since he was the only perfectly righteous man, he alone could transfer his perfect righteousness to us as men and women. Jesus, the infinite, could pay the infinite price. Jesus, the man, could transfer his righteousness to man. Friends, this is why the cross is of first importance to us. The blood of Christ and the body of Christ offered on the cross of Christ defeats our greatest enemy, sin and death. The thing that keeps us from God and ultimately from one another. There on the cross, Jesus loves his Father. He loves God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there on the cross, he loves his neighbor as himself. He fulfills the law for those of us that believe. And so, friends, how have you Or how will you respond to the cross of Christ? Again, Luke gives us two ways. Either we trust or we don't. There's the only two options. Either you trust this cross as a sacrifice or you don't. Let's consider that first response of not trusting. We see them uh, taught to us in these rulers, the soldiers, and in one of the criminals. Did you notice the antagonist here in the story? Did you notice... That they all have the same assessment of Christ. 
Let me read it to you again. Look at verse 35. The rulers say, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Look at the soldiers, verse 37. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Look at the criminal in verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. All three antagonists say the same thing. All of these unbelieving peoples point to Jesus' need to save himself from the cross as a sign of his validation. And because he doesn't, he's deemed by them a failure. The cross for them is foolishness as it is to many still today. Jesus, they, they think when they look at him, he's numbered with the other criminals. They think, well, he really is being judged by God for blasphemy. He's a fool. He's a fake. And so is anyone that follows him. That's their thinking. All of the unbelievers in the story saw the crucifixion of Christ as the defeat of Christ. This is the essence of unbelief, friends. Unbelief assumes, like they said of Jesus, that we can save ourselves. The cross, then, is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of defeat. However, if Jesus, though, can get off the cross, well, then he can prove his salvation. He can prove his uh, success. He can prove his strength if he can get off. And so can you, the thinking goes. You too can save yourself by getting off of your own crosses. By your own moral determination. Show that you are not weak but instead are strong. The thinking goes, why do we need a savior and a bloody cross when we can have our own determination to do the right thing? Who needs repentance and forgiveness from Jesus when after all we're not so bad? And after all God is loving. Yes, we're not perfect, but a few good deeds... Well, that'll clean it up. Get off the cross. Be strong. Save yourself, the thinking goes. Over the past few weeks, I've had the opportunity to talk about Jesus with some of my unbelieving friends. And in every single instance, when I've talked to them about this cross, about this Jesus, about my faith, every single one of them, when I've shared that with them, every single one said the same thing. Well, good for you. Good. That's good. You're a pastor. That's great. I'm glad that you have the church. That's good. Good for you. Now what's going on there? What, what, what is this? Why don't these unbelieving people act the same way as the rulers? As the soldiers? The criminals? Why don't they, in other words, mock me? Make fun of me? Beat me like these people do here for believing that a king would need to die for my salvation. Why don't they do that towards me? What's going on when unbelievers respond in a positive way that I'm, that they like that I find some sort of encouragement in that? Well, friends, the actions, their actions are different, but the essence is the same. They see the cross as little more than a good example. They see my believing the cross as a good motivator to save myself. They don't see it as the Son of God taking away the punishment that I or we deserve. They don't see the judgment of God on the Son of God for my sins against God. They see a nice man that was willing to say and do some nice things, even so nice as to die for those that believe. In other words, it's motivational for them. It's not essential. 
And why is it they see it that way? Well, because like those rulers and soldiers and that criminal, they think that salvation is accomplished by saving ourselves, by being strong, by getting off of our own crosses. And therefore, if I think Christianity will make me a better person, well, then good for me and the other Christians. And God will save me. If for the Jew, it's the Torah. Well, good for the Jews and the Torah. That'll make them better and God will save them. If for the spiritual but not religious, it's being spiritual but not religious. Well, good for the spiritual but not religious. God will save them. If it's expressive individualism, being your true self. Well, good for them. God will save them. They're being strong. Like the criminal on the cross, friends, the assumption is that in the face of our condemnation, there is no need to fear God. Save yourself and God will forgive you. Do your best. God will think it's enough. Friends, in those thinkings, we have too high of an assessment of ourselves and too low an assessment of our own sin against God. Which by extension, that comes because we have a low assessment of God himself. The reality is, friends, we are bankrupt. And at our impending death or in the Lord's return, we have to pay up. Listen, we are not diseased by sin. We are dead in our sin. And because of it, we are not strong. Nathan Knight is not strong. The cross, friends, is the evidence of the eternal damnation that all of us deserve. The horror of the cross is the illustration of the horror of our offense against God. The price of redemption is the blood of the Son of God. That's how far we have fallen. Until, friend, you understand that, you will never be saved. Until you see the condemnation of the cross, you will never see the redemption of the cross. John Calvin said, when we behold the disfigurement of the Son of God, when we find ourselves appalled by His marred appearance, we need to reckon afresh that it is upon ourselves that we gaze, since He stood in our place. Friends, the essence of unbelief scoffs at the need for the King of the Jews to pay the price of our redemption. Since unbelief assumes that salvation is getting off of the cross, even maybe even using the cross as motivation to do so. But this, in fact, friends, spits on the cross since it places the lodestone of your trust to be saved on yourself. The Apostle Paul makes it so clear. He says in Galatians 2 that if righteousness could be had through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Dear friend, if this is you, Listen, we cannot save ourselves. No amount of good works or good intentions is enough to save you. What we need, friend, is grace. We need grace. We need mercy. We are not strong but weak. We need abundant grace and mercy. Look to Christ to save you. Let's consider that now as we look at this final piece. Take a look at that other criminal in verse 40. After rebuking his fellow criminal, he says to him, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, referencing Jesus, has done nothing wrong. 
And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And friends, right here, right here, we have all of the elements of salvation. They're all right there. See, unlike the others that assume Jesus should say himself by getting off the cross, he understands three critical things. First, he understands that he deserves the cross. That nothing he can do to get off of it. It's his cross. Secondly, the innocent criminal uh, says Jesus doesn't deserve the cross. He does. Jesus doesn't since Jesus is innocent. And thirdly, that then leads him to appeal solely to the person of Christ. To show him mercy. To save him and bring him into paradise. See, the other thief didn't see it that way. The other thief, the other thief didn't seem to need to fear God. He didn't seem to acknowledge his guilt. And instead he saw Jesus not as a sinless substitute for his eternal salvation. He saw Jesus little more as muscle to get him off the cross. In other words, that other criminal wanted to use Jesus, not worship Jesus. Just like throngs still do today. They use Jesus to get them off of their own crosses. Oh, beloved, may we see and savor Christ as that other criminal did. May we acknowledge our guilt. May we acknowledge that we deserve the cross ourselves. And may we acknowledge that Christ alone is innocent. And may we plead the mercy and the grace of Christ on the cross of Christ to pay our debt in order that we might be in paradise with him. This is the essence of true belief. It's a plea for grace. Plea for grace in the person, the work, and the worth of Christ. This is true and everlasting salvation. It's confession. It's repentance. It's 1,000% trust in the sufficiency of Christ to bring us to himself. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Look to the grace and the mercy of the innocence of Christ on the cross to save you. Plead it, knowing you deserve where he hangs. But not only look to the sufficiency of Christ to save you, beloved. Also, look to the beauty of Christ's love to carry you on as you follow him. Look to the beauty of Christ's love to compel you on after you have been saved. So we've seen that salvation comes by acknowledging what we deserve, by seeing the innocence of Christ on the cross and pleading for grace and mercy to save us. But after doing this, it's hard to follow Jesus. Amen? It's hard. And so we look not only to the cross to save us, we also look to the cross so as to see the love of Christ to compel us on to stay at the fight. How do we see the love of Christ in addition to his sacrifice? Well, notice in this passage, we hear Jesus speak four times. Four times Jesus speaks in this passage. And did you notice that in all four instances, he's looking out for the welfare of others, not himself. When in his suffering, he says to the daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Or when from the cross he does as he commands and he loves his enemies and prays for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When he spoke to the repentant criminal and promised him life and paradise. And lastly, when he gave his spirit to the father, having completed the work that he'd been given to do. In all of these instances, from the whore of the cross, Jesus looked not to his own interest, but to the interest of others. 
see, beloved, the love of Christ on the cross. And also see the love of Christ in knowing that he did this freely. Freely for you of his own accord. He chose all of this for you. He did it because he loved his father. And he did it because he loved you, Restoration Church. And if he would freely suffer this much for us, how can we not trust him for all things? None of us will suffer as much as Jesus did. Therefore, we can trust him in the worth of our own sufferings. And so, beloved, I can't think of a better way to end a sermon on the cross of Christ than by reading the words of Paul as he meditates on the love of Christ in the cross. When he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, say it with me, who can be against us? <laughs> he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor COVID virus, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. Look to the cross, beloved. Look to the cross. See the sufficiency of your salvation. See the beauty. See the love. And may it compel you on to trust him. And if you are not trusting him, look to Christ alone to save you. And soon enough, beloved, we will be home with him. And we will finally see him at that table. These, beloved, are matters of first importance. This is the death of your death. And the death of Christ on the cross. It is Friday afternoon. But Sunday is coming. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We do not deserve it. And yet you came. May we trust you for all things. Forgive us where we don't. We are weak, but you are strong. I pray for those that are wanting to give their life to Christ. May they throw themselves on the cross. To the, may they look to the cross and the Christ on the cross as that other criminal did. And oh Jesus, hasten the day that you return. And may we plead the blood and the body of Christ until he comes. And even on that day when he comes, may we plead it on that day. We pray it in your name. Amen.